Hello, everyone. Uh, if y'all could grab a seat when you have a chance, that would be great. Um, my name is Eric Gomez. I'm a policy analyst for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and I'll be moderating today's uh, discussion about North Korea, the upcoming Trump-Kim summit, um, and all, all good things on a certain peninsula in Northeast Asia. Um, so today we have three speakers. Uh, Doug Bandau is the uh, senior, he's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And he recently traveled to North Korea right before the State Department uh, issued the travel suspension in 2017. Um, we have Daniel L. Davis, a senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities. He's also a retired U.S. Army officer. And finally, uh, Harry Kazianis, the director of Korea Studies at the Center for the National Interest. So today, we're just going to have uh, each of our speakers talk for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then we're going to turn over to uh, Q&A following their presentations. And we'll go in the order um, that I, of the speakers that they're sitting in. So first Doug, then Dan, then Harry. And let's get started. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. We are certainly living uh, in interesting times, if you look around the world. Uh, and Korea is among the most interesting places these days. A little more than a year ago, we had the president threatening fire and fury, sounding very much like the North Koreans had over the years. I mean, one of the my favorite slogans of the North Koreans was they planned on turning Seoul into a lake of fire. I mean, the imagery has always been there, and suddenly we had an American returning that. My South Korean friends were a little bit nervous, wondering why the U.S. president sounded like the North Koreans. And I had a friend come up to me in church and ask me if we were going to have a nuclear war. First time I've ever been asked that question. <clears throat> Uh, but thankfully, uh, that all kind of went away. And if you look at the last year, there's been nothing. <clears throat> that in terms of, you know, none of that kind of rhetoric, none of the threats, none of the, the fear-mongering, it's certainly been a very much a change in atmosphere. Indeed, the president has informed us that uh, he fell in love with Kim Jong-un. I don't know if he's mentioned that to Melania, exactly how the threesome works out, you know, but... Nevertheless, I think this has been a very good time for us that you know, we've had uh, you know, rising threats, fear of war, et cetera, and then all of a sudden we're having talking and discussion. <clears throat> now, there's been real concern that we haven't seen much denuclearization over the last year, and it'll be interesting to see if we get kind of a reboot at the upcoming summit in Hanoi. There's certainly an opportunity there. I think it's, it's a positive development despite some of the frustrations that people have. To my mind, looking ahead, the critical issue really is expectations. You know, what are our objectives? Clearly, the objective of the United States, at least officially, is denuclearization. We want, uh, you know, to get complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. It's a wonderful objective. We all would love to have that. It's certainly worthwhile for the United States, but I do think it's important, as we have this discussion, to realize that in some sense, you know, North Korea really is not a threat to the United States. That is, unless we actually believe that the North Koreans are completely suicidal, Kim Jong-un is not going to lose you know, one, two, three, half dozen, whatever number he might have that might hit something. He's not going to lose those at the United States because he realizes that the lake of fire would be visited upon North Korea, not the United States. I like to tell people that you know, I've had meetings enough and watched the behavior of the North Koreans. You know, the North Korean uh, leaders, uh, you know, Kim, uh, all three Kims, I think, have wanted their virgins in this world, not the next. Kim Jong-un is not sitting around hoping to go out in a <clears throat> radioactive funeral pyre in Pyongyang. That's really not his objective. So the reality is that the North Koreans, I, in my view, ultimately are after deterrence themselves as opposed to 
uh, attacking the United States. <clears throat> While from an American standpoint, there's still good reason not to want them to have nuclear weapons, it is a bit different than uh, the fear of the Soviet Union having nuclear weapons, which we once confronted where a man named Joseph Stalin ran the Soviet Union, one of the great monsters of, of humankind, and had nuclear weapons. And he was followed, of course, by Mao Zedong and the People's Republic of China that also got nuclear weapons where we actually considered pre uh, preventative war very seriously under both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. <coughs> So when we're thinking about North Korea from an American standpoint, at some level denuclearization, while a useful objective, you know, is not quite the same vital objective, it matters uh, off, an awful lot to South Korea because South Korea is much closer and much more concerned about weapons. Uh, but I think the real issue is the North Koreans. You know, if you want regime survival, nuclear weapons are perhaps the only mechanism you have for regime survival. The United States has, I think, unintentionally created a very perverse incentive structure. If you wander around the world blowing up, destroying, invading, and occupying countries you don't like, people look for ways to prevent that. And if you're sitting in Pyongyang and you watch Afghanistan and Serbia is dismantled and Saddam Hussein ends up pulled out of the hole and hung, uh, you know, the Ukraine, which gave up its nuclear weapons, you know, found that nobody was willing to come and defend it when it ran into trouble with Russia. And my favorite, of course, is Libya, where, in fact, you give up your nuclear weapons and missiles. <clears throat> and the end game, if any of you want to go to YouTube, you can see it. You get pulled out of the storm grate by the uh, insurgents, and you come to a rather unpleasant end. The point is nuclear weapons are a very useful mechanism of regime survival. I think the North Koreans view it that way. So to my mind, in terms of objectives, it's important not, not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. That is, I want denuclearization, but if I can't get that, there's a lot of other stuff I'd also like to have. And I think the critical thing we need to be looking at is, are there steps, mechanisms, processes, whatever, that we can get that help create a peninsula that is more peaceful and more stable and less likely to be at war? And, you know, the starting point is no testing. I think that's a very good one. Looking at reduced capacity of uh, the North to produce nuclear materials, getting inspectors in in some form, some kinds of transparency. There are a number of things that we should be looking for, aiming to do, including trying to reduce a North Korean sense of insecurity. And I say this recognizing that very hard to know exactly what the North thinks, very hard to distinguish between what's real and what's fake, you know, this is a regime for which propaganda obviously is a very important uh, tool. Nevertheless, it would not be unreasonable to assume that if you're sitting in Pyongyang and you look at the world around you, you realize that the correlation of forces has moved rather badly for you. That in 1950, your granddad launches a war and almost wins, and you're backed by the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Today, you live in a world where essentially you're on your own. South Korea has 50 times your economic strength. And then there's that great power across the ocean that can send one carrier group off your shore, and it's probably a greater firepower than your entire military. You know, the, from a North Korean standpoint, there is, I think, genuine insecurity. Then the question is, how do you try to you know, deal with that as well as their, their capabilities? And there are no good options. You know, some people talk about war. <laughs> Senator Lindsey Graham, whose offices are fairly close to this office building on the other side of the hill, Senator Graham said that, uh, well, we'd probably have to go to war there, but you know, that's okay because the war would be, quote, over there, unquote. The war would not be, quote, over here, unquote. Now, my friends who live in Seoul weren't entirely reassured 
by that notion of the <coughs> war being over there. And of course, any particular day there are 250,000 Americans in South Korea as you know, either soldiers or dependents or students or business people, and of course the U.S. would be involved. But war would be an extraordinary roll of the dice. It'd be utterly foolish. We've kept the peace for 70 years. The idea of risking that, I think, would be foolish. Sanctions may be helpful as part of a process, but we should have no illusions there that the survival of the regime matters more than economics. And of course, in the late 1990s, at least a half million North Koreans starved of, star of famine, died to death, you know, died, and unfortunately, it didn't change regime policy. The father of the current ruler was not particularly concerned about what happened to people in the countryside. Maximum pressure, I think, as a policy is essentially dead. And we see well, South Korea, we see China, we see Russia, all of them moving in different ways to relax that pressure. So it leaves diplomacy. <clears throat> to my mind, that's what we have to focus on. And I think there are a lot of things that we can offer. We need to be looking at diplomatic relations, ending the travel ban, encourage an engagement in a number of different ways. It should be part of that. As a, as a process, and we should play the long game. I think my hope here is to see a North Korea that is transformed. Today, uh, one of the things that clearly matters most to North Koreans and what the leadership fears is access to information. When I visited back in, uh, I, I visited twice. I was there in 1992, a very different North Korea, and I was there a couple of years ago. But the one thing they're really nervous about are flash drives. Uh, defectors tell us that most North Koreans have seen at least some South Korean TV. And the point is, all you have to do is see a South Korean soap opera, and you know that the regime has lied to you for your entire life. Now, when I went in, they made me kind of list my customs, you know, list all my stuff, and they included two flash drives that I use as backup. And I had to put those on the form because they want to make sure I take them out. You know, they don't want those kind of things left behind. So this is one where I think over the long term, we gain by having more people travel there. We gain by anything that we can do to try to get ideas and people in, because every American they meet I've talked to people at NGOs, for example, where they say they have con contact with patients over time. The first time they're nervous and scared, doing things, for example, drug-resistant TB, a, a group called Christian Friends of Korea. Heidi Linton uh, was head of that, and she said, you know, the first time they meet, the person's very nervous. The next time, they want them there because they know they are being helped in ways their government cannot help them which tells them they've been lied to, because you know, for years they've been told Americans are threatening and dangerous, and now all of a sudden they have one trying to save their life. So I think this is part of that process. We have to be looking at strategies here. And the question is what to do as everything breaks down, as people might fear, is we go to deterrence. That, uh, and I think we also have to be looking at uh, a troop presence in our relationship with South Korea. Now, this is obviously an issue uh, that matters, our relationship with the ROK. It's one that matters to people here on the Hill. There's been concern expressed that perhaps uh, you know, President Moon is a little too you know, uh, willing to make concessions to the North. But I think it's important to realize that from a South Korean standpoint, reconciliation is in fact existential. The Americans view uh, reconciliation as a useful tool to denuclearization. From a North Korean from South Korean standpoint, there are two issues that face you. One is the capability of North Korea. Second is their willingness to use it. So trying to change an environment and you know, moved a North Korea to a place where it is much less likely to consider military action is, again, extraordinarily important. And it matters an awful lot more to people where your capital is about 30, 35 miles from the DMZ than it matters to that great nation across the ocean where the war would, be, would not be over here, as we were told, but somewhere else. And I think that it, the U.S. should be encouraging the ROK to take the lead on this, 
that this from a stand uh, that kind of reconciliation is much better for the United States as well as the ROK. And I say that recognizing we should be wary. We should recognize you know, lots of things can be tactical from a North Korean standpoint. Nevertheless, I'm hopeful because I think there's a lot about Kim Jong-un that suggests he is different. Not a nice guy. Not a closet liberal. This is not Gorbachev. There's no Sakharov who's been released. There's no domestic liberalization. But this is somebody who seems, one, very concerned about economic growth and change and has done economic reforms at home, even though there's a lot. You, it's hard to get a lot done given that structure they're in. He seems committed to it. And second, this is somebody who's actually quite good at the diplomatic game and seems to like it. And I think from our standpoint, that's a good thing. It gives us something to work with. This is someone who might very well want to move his country away from pariah status into a status where it's a nuclear power, but one that is not particularly feared. And I think, for example, of Israel, India, Pakistan, countries that Americans don't sit around thinking are going to nuke them. You know, instead, we think about what should happen with these countries. We have a lot of other issues with them as opposed to nuclear ones. I don't know that's what he wants, but it does strike me that there's reason there to hope that this Kim can be worked with in a way that uh, we should be watchful and wary. Long term, I want to see a change in human rights, but I think in the short term that this is someone whom we may get positive results out of. And we shouldn't fear divergence with our South Korean allies. What is critical for the United States, and I think critical for legislators who seem concerned about uh, the U.S. alliance is some folks have said we shouldn't put the alliance on the table. That is, American troop deployment should not be on offer for denuclearization. And I find that an extraordinary argument, that it's far better for the United States to remain entangled in Northeast Asia with a nuclear North Korea than to get out and have a non-nuclear North Korea. How on earth is that better for the United States? Indeed, I would argue the only reason North Korea spends its time threatening the United States is because America's there. The point is, North Korea does not threaten to nuke China or the Europeans or Russia or Singapore or Iceland or anybody else because it doesn't give a flip. The point is, the North Koreans don't want to bring the U.S. in, but if America's there, then the question is, how do you make sure they don't come in? And the way you do that is to have the capability to turn Los Angeles or Seattle or Honolulu, or Dallas, or Chicago, or somewhere else into a lake of fire. So Americans have to ask the question, if we really get a nuclear North Korea with capabilities to hit America, is the alliance worth it? What is the United States getting out of that? What is worth a nuclear war for the United States? So these are issues I think that the United States also has to be thinking about in this relationship. My hope is, and I want to give the President credit, that he's given us an opportunity to hopefully move towards denuclearization, if not quite get there, move us towards a more stable and peaceful peninsula, which I think is extraordinarily important. The president doesn't always do it quite right, and diplomacy by tweet doesn't strike me as being the best way to do it. I think his expectations might be excessive. Nevertheless, this president has done something I don't think any other president would have done. And I think he deserves credit for that because we have opportunities today for a better resolution of the problems in Korea than we had in prior years. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Doug. Uh, next up will be uh, Daniel Davis. <clears throat> Thanks. I'm also uh, very grateful for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I, I love every opportunity I get to 
to share some of the uh, physical experiences I've had and in, in, in ways that uh, relate to well, what we're talking about here to maybe provide a different perspective, uh, looking at some of this stuff than, than you may have uh, thought before. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk a little bit about was, was about diplomacy itself. When you're, when you're going to engage in any kind of diplomacy, I mean, the first thing you have to do is you have to say, what is our strategic objective? What do we want out of all of this stuff? And I think that very clearly, at least categorically, whether we're talking North Korea or anyone else, it's got to be our, we want the security of the United States to be ensured and economic prosperity to be facilitated. I mean, I think those two things generally should apply across the board anywhere you're going to, and it certainly does in the North Korea situation, because both of those things are uh, substantially uh, at play here, and, and things could go one way or the other, depending on how we do our diplomacy. And, and the idea that, uh, unfortunately, one of the negative sides of, of the results of 9-11 uh, has been that we have militarized our foreign policy. And, you know, President Bush is famous, you're either with us or against us, and, you know, and bring it on and all that kind of thing. And it, we kind of got into this mindset that started there, and it really has kind of pervaded on, on autopilot, that we tell people what to do, and we tell our allies what they're going to do, and we try to compel others to do everything that we desire, irrespective of their, their personal interest or their, their national interest in it as well. And that just doesn't work very well. It doesn't work very well with your adversaries, and it certainly doesn't work uh, very well even with your allies because they, you know, they, all, they want to cooperate. They want to work with us, but they also want to feel like they're, they matter in this. And when we try to just tell everybody what they're going to do and we try to compel others to use, they have to do what we want or we're going to use military force, that complicates our situation. It complicates our matters. In the situation with North Korea right here, one of the other problems that is, happens in this town is that we want results right away. You know, we, we are going to enter negotiations for whatever, like, like say this, you know, the shutdown situation, whatever, irrespective of how that worked out. But the fact is, we know in a relatively short period of time, two sides are going to come together and something's going to come out of it. And then we're going to live with whatever happens after that. Well, diplomacy doesn't work that way. I mean, anytime you're talking about going from a situation where, you know, you had 20 something years of, uh, uh, you know, the situation with in North Korea where you had the problem with diplom uh, with uh, nuclear weapons and their program and all that and, and the, you know, the antagonism, the ever since 1953, this, you know, technical state of war that's existed and the, the troops on either side of the border, you don't get rid of that in, in a year. And, and I, I found it a little almost comical, but certainly head scratching that, you know, just months after Trump's uh, meeting with Kim Jong-un is that people were like, wait, why, why isn't this done? Why don't we have a, a completed agreement? Where's the denuclearization? And, and you know, everything's a fault or, or everything's a, a mistake and, and it's, it's not working. It's, it's just talk. And, and I'm thinking nobody is going to get to that point. That no one should expect, and certainly if you put yourself in that position, no one should expect that you're going to give up all of these things without getting something in return. So the idea that North, that Trump is going to go in there and just issue our directives and that Kim Jong-un is going to say, oh, okay, cool, sure, here's all my nuclear weapons, here's all of my, you know, everything, and we'll send them off to China, and then if it would be all right with you, if you would go ahead and, you know, move the sanctions off afterward, that'd be great. I mean, you know, probably not very likely to happen. 
<clears throat> so what we have to do is we have to be realistic and look at diplom diplomatic history of things that have really been, you know, worked out really well for the United States. They take years of, to accomplish in most cases, and they almost all have a step for step because you have to create uh, trust on both sides. Even if you're talking about somebody that has gulags and all this that you don't like, you still have to generate trust so that they will do stuff that ultimately works out to both people's advantage. And again, I go back to our original comment here. What is our objective and our strategic intent? We need to make sure that the United States is safe. So we don't want to go into a situation that could actually precipitate the very thing that we're concerned about. And if we tell the North Koreans that you're either going to do what we say or, as was certainly happening in 2017, we're going to put military force on the table, then you make it even less likely that it's going to happen and you make it take longer to get done. Now, one of the things I want to talk about uh, specifically and kind of, uh, I don't want to repeat some of the great things that Doug said or that Harry's about to say. Um, I do want to point out from a military perspective, what is the alternative here? If we don't go, uh, you know, if we don't get our primary objective, which some people want to say is complete verifiable denuclearization, what is the alternative? Now, I would first of all argue that peace on the peninsula is the, should be the primary must-have outcome not CVID. That would be great if that happens in many years from now. That would be super. But I think that you have to have peace on the ground first, and that will facilitate the potential for denuclearization. Because as Doug very aptly said, if you don't feel that you're threatened and your security is at risk, then you're much more likely to potentially trade away some other things that might give you some benefit. So if we seek peace first and then denuclearization second, then I think we actually have a shot at long-term success. But in case anybody thinks that we can compel this and, and use any kind of military force, I, I just want to disabuse you of that idea because that would be catastrophic for everybody, not just for them over there, but for us here, for our military men and women in uniform and the thousands of Americans that live over there and, frankly, even the North Koreans. I, I care about everybody. I don't want to see anyone get killed in a war because I've seen a lot of war. I've got four combat deployments, and I've seen everything from high-intensity tank-on-tank conflicts to classic counterinsurgency, military trainers, uh, and, and I've seen way too much destruction from war, and, and I have not seen it really accomplish anything in my lifetime for the United States with the potential exception of, of Desert Storm. You can make some cases there that that worked out, and then we redeployed out. But there's all kinds of other things we could talk about. But certainly in the post-9-11 era, uh, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that militarily, we have not achieved outcomes beneficial to the United States. Our, our threat against terrorism is higher now than it's been since, nine, since before 9-11 by a large stretch. You know, even the situation in Afghanistan, it's just a permanent perpetual war without even the potential for end. Because in military terms, you have to, if, you want to, if you're sending military forces in somewhere, you should have an achievable, attainable military objective that's tied to political realities so that it has an end state that's even possible. Right now, none of that exists. There is no end state even, even articulated. So the only thing you can do is just continue having conflict. If we went into North Korea under any circumstances, most likely uh, it's going to quickly deteriorate into an all-out war that's going to kill hundreds of thousands, probably millions. Now, you can say that because we have the greater resources, probably in time we would prevail over that, probably. But the cost would be catastrophic and just unimaginable. And we would be far worse and we would be set back decades 
far better to say, let's take a step-by-step approach. Let's give some credibility and credence to the legitimate security needs of the other side. And then let's find out where we have common ground, build confidence step-by-step, and let's get to a situation where military force by either side isn't even on the table. And then you can actually have a conversation about, do we even want to keep troops there anymore? Is that in our national interest? Right now, the idea is if you even broach the subject, I mean, there's, there's so many, especially neocon folks, but actually across the board politically, that it's just like immediately rejected without consideration because it's going to create, you know, the infamous void that's going to be filled in by fill in the blank, anything. But the fact is, those troops were there. The reason we even had them there in the first place was to keep peace and to prevent our security from deteriorating. If you have a situation where peace reigns, then why would you want to keep them there and keep spending that money year after year and risking the troops' lives and all those things that go along with that? If our security is, is maintained and guaranteed, if at some point in the future that actually has, has occurred five, ten years from now, then it's a legitimate reason that we don't need to keep those troops there anymore. That should at least be on the table for discussion because the ultimate objective is not how many troops can we keep abroad, but how do we keep the best peace for the United States and allow our uh, economic prosperity to continue on. That should be our objectives. Nice. Thanks, Sam. And last but not least, Harry. That's on. So. Well, hello, everybody. I hope everybody is well. It's great to see so many of you here. It's a holiday, folks. What are you doing here in D.C.? Go on vacation. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, does that, after the panel. Does that over. include us? <laughs> if you want. Hey, hey, you got to go somewhere, right? It's important. Well, anyway, thank you for, for, for Cato and, and for our friends on the Hill. And it's great to be with, with Doug and Danny and Eric. These are very good friends of mine. And the one thing that you're going to see in all of these presentations in my own is that we have a very different perspective than I think sort of the mainstream here on the Hill in Washington. And I think sort of our realist sort of viewpoint, I think it's gaining a little bit more currency these days. So just want to throw that out there. Um, what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to be the PowerPoint guy. And I promise this is to keep me organized. This is not for you guys. So just keep that in mind. The, the typos are my own. So what I want to talk about is I want to get to the fun stuff. The, the, these gentlemen have sort of set the scene, sort of told you where we are. Well, I want to kind of give you an idea of where we're going or where we could be going. Now, truth be told, I'm an optimist when it comes to North Korea. If you had asked me this 18 months ago, I was not an optimist. I was very pessimistic when it came to the DPRK. But I think there's a lot of reasons why we have to be optimistic. I think Danny and Doug sort of laid that out, that the, the opposite is war, and war would claim millions of lives. And I don't think we realize how close we came to that. So bottom line, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out for you guys sort of what the people who are against a summit are for and what those of us who are for a summit, what, what that all looks like, where the summit could go, what the deliverables will be, and what happens after the summit, which I actually think is a lot more interesting. So here we go. The disclaimer, these are my own remarks. They are not necessarily the viewpoints of my organization. Next. <laughs> Let's get to the fun stuff, right? So the state of play. So this is sort of where I come down, and I think I'm going to speak very broadly for Doug and Danny. What do the realists think? What do people who are for engagement, for you know, negotiation with the DPRK, what do they think about all this? Well, the president, I think, today a little bit made my case. 
he was talking about in his remarks that as long as, quote unquote, the missiles don't go up or get tested, you know, he's happy. I'm, I'm greatly paraphrasing there. But think about this for a second. We've dealt with North Korea and missile tests and nuclear weapons tests for a decade now. Why in 2017 did all of this pop? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, it was the very clear visuals of ICBMs going into the sky and creating a lot of angst here in Washington, but very specifically at the White House. Now, let's think about President Trump for a second here. He is a very media-centric president, maybe more media-centric than anybody else who's ever come before. He's very focused on happening on Fox News, what his conservative allies think. This president does, want, does not want to be made to look like a fool. And I think this is one of the reasons why he made comments like fire and fury, uh, you know, very, very tough remarks at the, new, at the UN that he would destroy North Korea if they attacked or threatened the United States or allies. So I think one of the things we have to think about when we're thinking about this crisis is it was those visuals of ICBMs going into the sky that drove this crisis. Now, it's kind of interesting how the president keeps talking about and Mike Pompeo keeps talking about that the missiles aren't being tested anymore. That's important for this administration. And actually, it's been over 400 days since there's been a test. And it's one of the reasons the tensions have dropped. So keep that in mind. Another thing I want to, bring, to talk about a little bit is about the role of South Korea, because that is transformative here. That's important. The moon miracle, as I call it, or, or President Moon of South Korea's efforts to try and create a rapprochement or detente with North Korea are very big. This government has acted essentially as a bridge between Washington and Pyongyang, and that has been a difference maker. I, I can tell you diplomats in Seoul that I've worked with, they have literally worked day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to try and make this peace happen. Uh, essentially, President Moon has staked his whole political legitimacy on this one issue. Imagine politicians in Washington doing that. That type of bravery we don't see very much in Washington these days, and I think it's something we have to sort of think about. Uh, Singapore summit. I know it's been panned, folks. I know a lot of people say, oh, didn't create any realistic, you know, tangible deliverables. You know, didn't change anything. North Korea didn't, you know, give up 10 nuclear weapons right there on the tarmac. Of course they weren't. That, that's, not, that's not what the Singapore summit was about. It was an opening. It was a bridge. It was a beginning. Um, and I think if you look at the actual text of the Singapore Declaration, there's really three big things there that the North Koreans and Washington are now working on in parallel, as Steve Beacon said at Stanford, to try and deliver sort of a peaceful result and get to denuclearization. So that's important. That is the DNA of what is going to happen in the future, and it's important to, to know that. Um, so bottom line here, look, North Korea is a, national, uh, is, a, is a nuclear threat. It's a problem, but there's a lot of countries, folks, that have nuclear weapons that are threatening to the United States, Russia, China, others. We don't panic because they have nuclear weapons. We don't panic when they test missiles. In fact, Russia's tested some missiles recently that are much, much more capable in North Korea, and they never hit the news cycle. Nobody even really knew that they existed except us geeks who sort of track this for our lives. So just keep that in mind. There we go. All right. So if you're a neoconservative, if you're John Bolton or somebody else sort of in that camp, what do you think about all this? Simple. North Korea is a mafia state. You don't trust them. You don't believe anything they say. They lie. They cheat. They steal. N nothing they say matters. Okay, fine. Fair enough. That's, that's what they believe. They believe that there's going to be little progress toward denuclearization. They do not believe that the North will ever denuclearize under any situation. 
no matter what happens. Don't give them any concessions. And you see a little bit of that in the Trump policy. You know, FFID, the fully verified irreversible denuclearization of North Korea. That big mouthful, mouthful basically means that we are not going to give them anything, any sanctions relief, until they give up all their nuclear weapons. Well, I don't think that's going to work. And I think that's why you see the administration slowly starting to shift on that. If you look at every public statement that's come out in six months, you see that slowly starting to slip away. So watch that. Um, just other quick things. They worry about growing military capabilities. I think these gentlemen have talked about that. Um, something else we should, the, the neoconservatives point to is, no working level meetings. How come they didn't want to meet with Steve Begune too many times? How come they blew off planning meetings before the Singapore summit? So that's something our neocon friends will point to is the North Koreans not being sincere. Um, so we'll just kind of move on from there. Let's get to the, the bigger things with the things I think you guys want to talk about. The summit, what is going to happen with the summit? Well, there's a lot of moving parts to this. So I'm gonna sort of give you my take from talking to, to senior administration officials uh, diplomats in Seoul that have talked to me on background, and uh, there's sort of a broad outline of where I think things are now. Now, this could all change. There's a lot of X factors, which I'll get to in a second, but I think there's some broad outlines. I think we have to think of this in terms of both sides needing a win. I think the Singapore summit was, like I said, panned by a lot of people. Both sides want to come out of this saying, I got something from the other side. I, I have something, something that they can point to. I think the most obvious thing for that is a peace declaration. Now, a lot of people are going to say, oh, we, we shouldn't give North Korea a peace declaration. It's a concession. Well, let me ask you all something. Are there any bullets being traded along the demilitarized zone right now? No. My grandfather, Joseph Rosso, fought in the Korean War. He left that war very, very damaged and hurt person, and it was with him the rest of his life. That war's over. My father-in-law, who's 88, God bless him, who left this, this earth last year, fought in that war. This war's over. It's, it's, it's not being waged anymore. There's nothing wrong with admitting that it's over. It's like fighting over the, if the sky is blue. We all know the sky is blue. There's nothing wrong with admitting that. That's not weakness. So I, I think it's important to note that. The other thing I would talk about with the peace declaration and why it's so important is it, it's a marker in time. It shows that DPRK, US relations have changed. We are turning the page, so to speak. And I think it's also for, good for President Trump because he can come back to Washington and say, I am the president that ended the Korean War. If he's looking for some way to change the media narrative away from national emergencies and the Mueller probe and all these things, that is one way to do it. And I think that's something he wants to do. Think about how many times he'll be able to go on Fox News and say, I'm the president who ended the war and how all of conservative media will just keep repeating it. It's a heck of a line, folks, and it, it puts his name in the history books no matter what else happens. So I really think it's going to happen. And for Kim, quite simply, he gets to be the same thing. He can go back to Pyongyang and say, I'm the Korean leader who ended, the, ended this war. Kim Il-sung, my grandfather, didn't do that. Kim, his, his father didn't do that. He can be that transformative leader. But he also ha can say to the military cadre around him, to, to all the other insiders around him in North Korea, we can trust the Americans now. They've put their name on this paper. That, that, that's something that's different. This is a big deal. Um, other things that are on the table, and this is all bad in the media, but closure of Yongbyon. I think, that is, I think that is possible. It's on the table. Of course, there's a lot of things that are sort of baked into that. For example, what does the inspection regime look like? Where can the inspectors go? What is their access level? Is it part of the IAEA? Is it Americans going in? What is their level of access? So we're going to have to work all that out. 
The other thing here that's important, guys, is sanctions relief for Yongbyon. Now, Washington is going to tell you that they are not going to give sanctions relief. This is my own personal opinion, but I think what Washington is going to need to do is figure a way to achieve what North Korea wants, which is a little bit of pressure off their economy. I think we can figure out ways to do that. There's lots of different ways to do that and not call it sanctions relief. So just keep that in mind. Lastly, opening of liaison offices. Look, we have to be able to talk to one another. One of the big problems with, with the United States and North Korea is it's very hard to talk to one another in formal diplomatic channels. There's no weakness in having liaison offices. So a, a senior administration official can send a message to liaison office and say, hey, we have a problem, or have a meeting and say, let's discuss this. It speeds the process of diplomacy up. Right now, it moves at a snail's pace because we can't talk to one another. That's a huge problem. All right, so what can go wrong? A lot. <laughs> Sorry, I'm an optimist, but even I have to recognize some of these things. So quickly, very, very quickly. A um, few things here that could, that could be issues. Some of this is slightly dated, but I think extremely relevant. Um, look, the US-China relationship is very much a part of what's going on in the Korean Peninsula. Now, over the last couple days, it seems like there's signs that there could be a trade deal, but this is President Trump. If he doesn't like the deal, it could get blown up. We, we don't know. There's a lot of moving parts to this. It's possible that we could get a 60-day extension. All sides keep talking. But think about this on the timing. We have the summit on the 27th and the 28th. On March 1st, technically, if things don't work out, America will hit China with a lot of, of, of deep tariffs. Now, how do you think China is going to respond to that? Well, they're going to use anything to their advantage to sort of stick it to the United States. Well, considering the fact that China is the one that actually controls our maximum pressure campaign because 90% of North Korea's exports go through Beijing in one way or another, all China has to do to retaliate is simple, open the border. And that's it. That maximum pressure is dead right then and there. So we have to, this is something I think the administration is thinking about, and it's a challenge. So think about that a little bit. Um, other things, and I've sort of touched on these things, U.S. domestic politics. How does North Korea see Donald Trump and where he is sort of in his administration? Do they think he's a, a strong leader? Do they think he's been weakened? Do, what do they think about the Mueller probe? What, what do they, where do they sort of feel he is in terms of, you know, his power in this town? It's hard to get that read. Me, I was talking to one diplomat last night in Seoul, and what this person said to me is they actually thought the national emergency that Trump declared is going to show the North Koreans how tough he is and that they, they better be more conciliatory. Now, that's just one perspective. I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> possible, possible one way to look at that. Um, and there's just a couple other quick things. Kim Jong-un's new way. Now, this was in his, his January 1st speech that I know a lot of you have probably seen. He talked about if U.S. DPRK relations do not go well, he will find a new way. I think that new way is actually going to China for economic aid and economic development. That would be really sad for many reasons, but especially for the ROK or South Korea, because I really do think that their future, the way they see it in terms of economic development, growth, is by doing a lot of investment in the North. And I think there's a lot of fear in Seoul that they could end up losing North Korea to China. And I think that is sort of one thing that um, Kim is sort of hinting at here. Um, so just quickly, I know I'm almost out of time, so I'll try to be brief here. Um, where did this all go after, after the, the summit? Where, where do we sort of, if everything goes well, how does this sort of play out? Well, I think the big thing that I would point out for this administration is we're trying to do the hardest thing first. We're trying to get the North Koreans to give up their ace in the hole, as these gentlemen have pointed out, their nuclear weapons. 
They know having nuclear weapons is a guarantee. We're never going to invade them. How do we explain to them that they have to give those up first in order to have diplomatic relations to remove sanctions? What I would argue is we have to put denuclearization at the end. I'm not saying give it up, but I'm saying is we need to relieve all the pressures in this relationship and then get to denuclearization at the very end. Make that the, the, the sort of final place where this goes, so to speak. And I think if we do that, I think you're going to have a much better result. But the last thing, and I'm gonna leave it here with this, Guys, this is gonna take a long time. This is going to take years. We have to remember, we've had 70 years of tensions with North Korea. We have a lot of hard feelings on both sides. If you look at North Korea, and I think Doug can tell you this very well, he's been there twice, as he said, the hatred of the United States is embedded in that country's DNA. It's in their fabric. Up until recently, if you went to Pyongyang or just looked at photos from Pyongyang, it was all pictures of the imperialist warmonger, they've destroyed our country, uh, the, the Korean War in their mind is very real. So we have to remember this is not gonna be something that is going to be fixed in a day, a month, a year, not in this administration, even if it goes two terms. So we have to sort of settle in. This is gonna probably go for many years. And I think if we're patient, if we follow this through, I think we could have a good result. Thank you. All right, so. Um, we're going to switch over to Q&A now. Um, we're going to do Jeopardy rules. So frame questions as a question. State your name and affiliation. Please don't give a speech or else I'll be very upset at you. Um, <laughs> so to, to sort of start the process off, um, I, have, I have two quick questions that anyone can feel free to take. Uh, so Doug and Dan bro both brought up the future of the U.S.-North Korea, or North Korea, U.S.-South Korea alliance. Um, and what we should do about U.S. troops on the peninsula. And it's interesting because so far in the negotiations, the North hasn't actually seemed to make a big deal out of the troop presence. And I wonder if we get to a point where the North Koreans aren't actively pushing to withdraw troops, and there is a path to eventual denuclearization while keeping them there, and the North doesn't mind that they're there, and the South wants them to stay, what, what is the situation then if, if the presence is no longer seen as this kind of security threat to the North? It's an American interest. And in that situation, it's not clear to me why we would want them there. I mean, the, the argument that you typically hear is kind of dual purpose. That is, they help contain China. And I actually think that's a fantasy. I think, I, I imagine uh, the, the White House calling the Blue House, saying that we want to use, uh, you know, base facilities in South Korea so we can bomb the Chinese mainland because they're attacking Taiwan. And I think there'd be mass cardiac arrests in the uh, you know, ROK presidential administration. You know, yes, we want to become permanent enemies of the country next door that has a very long-term memory that's going to be here when you leave. Oh, isn't that a wonderful idea that will really help our security? My guess is that they would say not just no, but hell no, not, not a single plane is taking off you know, from an, a, a base here in the ROK. So I think there's a bit of an illusion there that you know, it has this value. So in my mind, it should be based on American security interests. That the mere fact some other country wants us to protect them doesn't strike me as a good reason to protect them. We should make that judgment based on our assessment at the time. Do we think it advances an American interest or not? And, and I would add to that, uh, there's a big misconception about what the military capability is. When we say that this you know, puts a, you know, fear into the hearts of, of North Korea or, or certainly of Beijing, 
you have to recognize that of those 28,000 troops there, there is one single combat brigade. That means uh, that's like one-third or one-fourth, depending on how you put it together, of, a, of one division. And there's, I don't even know how many scores of divisions probably up north. Uh, and there's a bunch in the South Korean. <coughs> it's, it's symbolic. Uh, now, there's, there is some air power there. There is something you could do with that. But in terms of ground forces, there's one combat brigade. So we don't really provide anything more than symbolic because we wouldn't be able to to do much of anything other than to guarantee that we would be into a fight if something happens. And I'm not, again, sure that that's really in America's national interest. So anything that's going to be improving America's security and America's national interest, I think, is something that we should be pursued almost no matter what the other circumstances along with it are. Just quickly, I would just add, if the North Koreans actually do move very, very strongly towards denuclearization, if we see them taking down nuclear power plants, if we see warheads coming out, why wouldn't we pull some troops out? I, I mean, if the, the thing is, if, if, if the threat is reduced, if the reason we are there is because there's a, a threat to U.S. national interests and that threat starts to go away, it's okay to leave. We, we have this mindset that once we're somewhere, we can't leave that place. That's a way to bankrupt the country, folks. It's important to, to have our interests in mind. It's important to make sure that if there are threats, that we deter those threats. But if threat, the threat is gone, it's okay to move on. That history, we've done this many times before. Think about the Cold War. When the Soviet Union fell apart, we had hundreds of thousands of troops in Europe. We've pulled most of them out. The reason is the Soviet Union fell apart. It's, it, it's okay. There's no reason to fear all these sort of things that, that aren't there. If the threat disappears, it's okay to move on. All right. Uh, to bring up another, one more question, and then we'll turn it over to the audience to ask questions. Since we're on the Hill, um, I think it's important to note uh, the Democratic control of the House and upcoming elections in 2020. Uh, and I'm curious what the panel thinks about what is the Democrat role in all this? Um, is there a worry that, or is there a possibility that the Democratic Party plays spoiler in a general effort to sort of oppose Trump's policies writ large and are favoring slowing down the peace process or even reversing it uh, if they have to, or do they sort of say, we're actually going to treat our allies better than he did and then get the US more in line with the South Korean approach? Um, there's a lot of different, I think, potential routes it could go. Um, so I'm just curious what uh, you guys think about, about that. Well, I do think there's a danger that we see kind of the left in a broad sense and the Democrats in a, in a more partisan sense of reacting against anything Trump does. And I think that's very dangerous. I mean, a year and a half ago, people on the left were concerned that Donald Trump was going to start a nuclear war. And then they got very concerned and decided that he'd been sold out and, and played by Kim. This is an outrage. Well, the obvious answer to that, of course, is start a nuclear war. I mean, I, I, I found that astounding. I mean, you know, the standing joke is it took Donald Trump for the Democratic Party to decide that it loved the FBI, thought the CIA was a fantastic organization, thought the presidency of George W. Bush was absolutely magnificent, loved George H.W. Bush, and think the Defense Department is fabulous. So I, I think it's critical that uh, you know, the Democrats have an extraordinarily important opportunity that I think to set out their own foreign policy, and it should not be just reactive against Trump. What it should recognize is that, you know, the broken clock, you know, is, is right twice a day, that the fact that the president does something, it actually might be a good policy, even if you don't like everything else about him. And I would argue that case on Korea. 
And I think the Democrats have a real opportunity here, and they can help him fine-tune it. I mean, I think there are things that they can kind of push him in the right direction if they don't like where he's going, but they shouldn't respond to it just because they don't like him. The question is, has he actually gotten this right, and if so, how do you make it better? All right, and so with that, I'll turn it over to y'all uh, in case uh, you have any questions. Um, please raise your hand. I'll call on you, and we'll get a mic to you. Um, okay, uh, you, sir, in the back. Uh, oh, we'll get a we'll get a mic to you, sir. Or. <laughs> Is there anything that um, uh, negotiators can learn from uh, uh, negotiations with Iran and their nuclear program? Well, the one thing that I would hope that we all learn is one of the, one of the things that's making negotiations with North Korea more challenging than it should be is that we have, as a, as a country, We've gotten more into getting out of agreements than we have getting into them. When you've gotten out of the ABM Treaty, the INF Treaty, the JCPOA with, with South Korea, all that makes these negotiations much more difficult and raises the bar for, for creating trust because they have to be convinced enough that we're going to live up to our word before they're going to give away something that that's, you know, can't be replaced. And I think that their interests are such that they have to go down this path but those kinds of things makes it a lot more difficult. The, the one thing, the analogy probably that is the same is that it took about two years to get that JCPOA, uh, and certainly that time frame is, is very consistent with what we could get here on a good case, but it's not going to be fast. But I think that we, we haven't done ourselves any, any services by that. The, uh, North Korea has a lot more leverage than Iran did in two different ways. Number one, it has nuclear weapons. It has them. This is not a potential program. They have them. So we're asking them to give up what they have already gotten, which in fact, we, we don't know the exact capabilities, we make presumptions, but, it, but in dealing with this, it would be foolish not to assume that they don't have at least some capacity to deliver them. Probably not to the United States, but certainly to Seoul, perhaps Tokyo. I mean, one, so that gives them leverage. Second is they have a conventional leverage. I mean, the mere fact that Seoul is 35 miles or so from the border, they have mass artillery built in, they have scuds that could hit Seoul that even before nuclear weapons, they had a retaliatory capacity that Iran simply does not have. I mean, Iran is, doesn't have a significant, I mean, it, it had you know, more special forces, Iranian, you know, the Revolutionary Guard, that stuff, as opposed to a more you know, effective conventional force, and to hit what? You know, the potential place to hit would be Israel, and Israel would slaughter them. I mean, Israel itself has its nuclear capacity in a conventional military that far outranges uh, Iran. So I think in dealing with the North, we have to take that leverage into account. You know, expecting somebody who's willing to execute his uncle, take out his half-brother at an international airport using banned chemical weapons, this is a dude who you don't screw with. He's gonna, he wants to stay alive and he wants to stay in control. The idea that he give up his leverage in the hope of something else won't happen. Let's be aware of that leverage. Uh, yes, ma'am? Oh, sorry. Could you quickly state uh, your name and affiliation? I'm Sujin Park with the Woodrow Wilson Center. Um, my question is that I agree very much with many of the things that you have uh, presented, but my actually concern is that if let we'll have first have to see how the summit goes at Hanoi. But let's say things all go better than we had 
expected. And we do come up with some kind of agreement that is workable and maybe not the perfect, but you know, something that to look forward to. But uh, looking back in the history, when we did have an agreement, a 1994 agreement, framed, uh, not, uh, framework, um, in addition to North Korea's cheating, there was also the US Congress that was not able to deliver on its end. Uh, which was also part of the reason, I think, that, that uh, collapsed. So what do you think? This is hypothetical, but um, if, even if they, uh, they agree, reach an agreement, do you think uh, the agreement would be able to be supported by the Congress? Well, I think one thing, great question, first of all. Um, this is why I think I, I should have actually sort of teased this out in my presentation. The wording peace declaration here is what makes the difference, because if it was a treaty, <laughs> it's not getting passed. Let's just be honest. There's just no way. Anything that Donald Trump brings to this Congress, it's radioactive, literally. So it's just not going to happen. So I think a peace declaration is certainly possible, something that would be done through executive orders, something like that, um, but not a, a treaty. So I, I, you're absolutely right. Both sides, DPRK and the United States, have lit on fire the diplomatic process in one way or another. In Congress, when you talk about the, the 1994 agreement, it, what you're referring to is, is oil shipments going slow, light water reactors not being given to the DPRK. They were very angry about that, and one of, that's one of the reasons they list that they decided to pursue nuclear weapons, that we couldn't keep our word. So yeah, all of these things are, are, are huge problems. And I think that's why we have to, when we think about North Korea, we have to take the very long road. What Doug and Danny said is, is, is very important here. We have this mindset, all of us, at, at least speaking for myself, that we want things very fast. You know, we go on Twitter, we pump out those 240 characters, we get instant <laughs> gratification. This is going to take years if it's going to work. If we're doing it right, uh, we're going to have to work on getting some sort of relationship that's normalized where we can talk to one another. We're going to have to talk about things before nuclear weapons, conventional weapons. As Doug pointed out, there's a ton of weapons along the demilitarized zone that could kill hundreds of thousands of people within a day or a few days. We have to figure out how to mitigate those threats. Once you work some of those things out, then you can move on to nuclear weapons. So bottom line, this is gonna be a process and we have to trust the process. If we don't, this will collapse. So Harry, to just uh, follow up on that, um, do you see that, so I think, uh, I've been to Seoul recently too and it sounds like from the South Korean folks that I talked to that the order of priority is different, where South Korea prioritizes sort of a transformation and relationship and then sees that as a way to get to denuclearization. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the US has been sort of shifting our own view to be more in line with Seoul's approach? 1,000%. I think it's very subtle though, Eric. You have to really parse the statements on a microscopic level. Going back to maybe right before the first summit when Donald Trump had, had North Korean officials here and he's talking about, oh, you know, North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat anymore. I don't even like talking about maximum pressure. Those are his words. And he's slowly moving away from CVID, FFID. I think Trump realizes it, maybe not coherently, but I think he, and in, in many respects, I think he gets the fact that the North Koreans are just going to hand over their nuclear weapons, that this is going to take a very long time to resolve. And I do think he is indirectly coming to Seoul's viewpoint that it's better to try and bring North Korea into the national, international system, get them invested in the process, 
and then try to sort of dislodge those nuclear weapons. Dan? And if I could, if I could bounce on a little bit, one of the things that I've been uh, emphatic about pointing out, even back during 2017, during the fire and fury times and, and all the times since then, is that anything politically could change overnight in, in either country and in, in many places. But if we stick with that primary objective of keeping the United States safe, we don't ever have to go to war with North Korea. If they cheat, if, if our political politics change, the, the instrument of going to war doesn't ever have to be used to keep us safe because our overwhelming conventional and nuclear deterrent will achieve what uh, Doug talked about at the beginning, which is that Kim Jong-un wants to live, and he has shown everything that he, in his actions and behavior, that he wants to engage on, on a national level, uh, international level. He wants his country to improve economically. All those things can be used to our case to deter. So if it gets into the future and stuff, the bottom line is there will never be a war on the North Korean Peninsula unless we start one, and we don't need to do that. And I think you're right that the president and the administration should be concerned about Congress's role. It strikes me that this is a reason where they should focus, for example, on sanctions relief rather than giving foreign aid. One requires congressional appropriation. The other one, they can do Security Council and other things. So they should keep in mind what they have a unilateral authority to do versus what they're going to have to get congressional action on, at least in the short term. I'll take a couple quick questions. Um, is you, sir, in the back? And you, sir, up front. Yes, uh, Larry Hill, DOD fellow. Uh, my question is, can you speak a little bit about um, the general U.S. policy followed by previous administrations of not rewarding bad behavior, of not negotiating um, with bad actors? Uh, it seems if, if you allow regimes to break uh, all treaties and all agreements, trample over human rights, that that would dissuade you from wanting to give anything up at the negotiating table. Just explain why you think that this is something that we have to kind of move away from. You mean we, we, don't, we don't negotiate with countries like Saudi Arabia that start wars, slaughter civilians, dismember journalists? Look, I mean, America has principles on foreign policy which it completely ignores whenever it feels like it. We're upset about destabilization of the Middle East except when we blow up Iraq and blow up Libya. And oh, those worked out really well. We love stability, except. Uh, look, I mean, we've, we negotiated with the Soviet Union. I mean, Mao Zedong, and we finally decided we had to negotiate with him. I mean, two great, you know, you think about mass murderers in human history in terms of numbers. You put Mao and Stalin along with Hitler. I mean, you, there's a uniqueness to Hitler's crimes. But you think about what Stalin did with, and had nuclear weapons, and Mao had nuclear weapons, we negotiated. Uh, to my mind, that's one of the great tragedies of not having diplomatic relations with the PRC was if we'd had, nego we'd had diplomatic relations in 1950, maybe we could have forestalled Chinese intervention. Because they tried to send us signals of, you know, basically don't go by the Yalu, we really don't want you on our border. They tried to send it through India. I mean, it became, you know, and, and this things, and just think if we'd had a direct community. Imagine a Cuban Missile Crisis without a Soviet embassy, without the ability of Bobby Kennedy to go see the Soviet ambassador. So in my mind is, of course, we negotiate with bad actors. And at times, we reward them. Not because we want to. I mean, the point is, you, you know, there are times you just got to. So, and I, I view that with North Korea. The, if the alternative to negotiating with and reward, this is an awful regime. It sets the standard. We talk about Eritrea as being the North Korea of Africa. North Korea is an awful place. But the question is, can we make it less awful? 
Well, we're not going to make it less awful in human rights if we don't deal something with the security. They are not going to become a democracy, you know, unless we're able to make other transformations. And I, I care about South Korea as the democracy. I don't want a war there. So the starting point then is how do you bring down the temperature? So I say, look, we do what we got to do. We, we maintain principles and we accept the fact that in the World War II, we made the right choice. You work with the Soviets to destroy the Nazis. Even though the Soviets are kind of nasty characters, you're making relative judgments and you're doing what, some very difficult choices. I mean, uh, this gentleman up front? I'm, I'm just a curious nobody, so. Um, <laughs> um, can Us you do, too. <laughs> can you speak very briefly to the economic benefits and beneficiaries of uh, essentially more of the same or even a ramping up of the, the kind of bellicose talk and, and posture versus uh, a change, and so opening up and actually interacting with them? Yeah, I, 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 I've mentioned in my remarks about how security and economic prosperity have to go hand in hand. And uh, I'll kind of flip that over a little bit in terms of that is that I've talked about the consequences of war and, and blood and treasure, but that would also devastate the economic conditions, for prospects for the United States and the entire region almost beyond recognition. And, and concurrently or conversely, peace on there will expand those opportunities for a lot of different people. And, and also, I really like what you said there a second ago and wanted to jump on that. The best way to improve human rights and to give them, the people of North Korea, a chance to escape a lot of these bad conditions is to, to help create conditions that both them and South Korea can improve their relations. Because we saw that, uh, I saw that in, in uh, when the East and West Germany came together and how bad they were before. And once they were able to, you know, come together and the Soviet Union fell apart, the living standard went way up without having to take any particular human rights actions on that. Harry? Uh, just quickly, you know, a year ago, I wouldn't have been here. I'll, I'll be very honest with all of you. I was very much a hawk on this issue. Doug, Danny, know this. I was more on the, the neocon side of things. But I have to tell you that the, when you look back at 2017, you look at Bob Woodward's book, you look at some of the things that have come out, look at Van Jackson's book that just came out called On the Brink, where it's sort of a first cut of history on what happened in 2017. We were very close to a nuclear war. Imagine, guys, if this fails. Imagine if this summit collapses or imagine after the summit this collapses and North Korea decides, I better test an ICBM to show the United States what I can do. What do you think happens after that? This administration is going to have a lot of people pushing to strike. If that happens, we're in a totally different world. So if, if you don't like the president, I respect that. If you don't want to root for him, fine, but silently hope that this works. Because going back to 2017, we don't have any room left to maneuver. Uh, that's really what has sort of put me into this camp because if you sort of play it all out, it's terrible. I mean, just quickly, I would say, back in 2017, I did a war game that looked at what a full-blown nuclear war with North Korea would look like. In that scenario, 8 million people died. And it, actually, the death toll didn't go any higher because the computer broke. <laughs> so that's, that's the stakes we're looking at here. So please keep that in mind. Well, thank you for joining the dark side, Harry. Welcome. It's great to have you on our team. Uh, and with that, um, we're, all, we're all out of time, but thank you so much for coming to this Hill Briefing. Um, please thank our panelists and uh, have a great day.